December 24, 1943. A child lies on a cowskin rug by a wood-burning stove in a cabin in the forest northwest of Santa Fe, New Mexico. She plays with a radio, lingering on a station here and there, Bing Crosby singing I'll Be Home for Christmas, the president sharing stories about his meeting with Mr. Churchill and Marshal Stalin in Tehran. The girl twists the dial and catches a blip of sound on a frequency that yesterday produced only static. She turns the dial back, and the room is filled with music. A violin at first, backed by strings and wind instruments, bright yet wistful. She lingers on the station that shouldn't exist and wonders, could this have something to do with the mystery city on the Mesa? She had overheard her father discussing the place with a friend over beers late one night while she lay awake in the next room, had heard the stories of a compound surrounded by barbed wire, of guard towers, of men in jeeps wearing military fatigues and carrying rifles. Out romping with the dog and her brothers by the creek, she'd met some kids who had been up to the fence. They heard the laughter of children. They heard distant rumbling. There were rumors that poison gas was being made up there, that scientists had created a beam that could lock up the engines of a plane far ahead. Automobile drivers in the vicinity reported that their engines stopped suddenly, all at the same instant, then 20 minutes or so later, began to operate as usual. She was most curious about the enigmatic doctor who presided over the compound. Unbeknownst to her, this Christmas Eve would provide her a most intimate glimpse into his mind, because the song she heard over those secret airwaves that night was Mozart's Concerto No. 24 in C minor, from the record collection of J. Robert Oppenheimer, director of the Los Alamos Laboratory and father of the atomic bomb. The song was Oppenheimer's revolutionary anthem. Let's imagine that night up on the mesa, behind the barbed wire, past the guard towers and the army men in jeeps, beyond the frozen pond, past the old boys' school dormitories made of rough-hewn ponderosa pine and aspen logs, down the snow-dusted street known as Bathtub Row, to a modest log and stucco house emanating light and music. Oppenheimer steps out of the front door and onto the porch for a smoke. He holds the cigarette between his thumb and forefinger, cradling it over his palm as he lights up and takes a long drag. He smokes in silence, habitually flicking the ash from the end of his cigarette with his pinky, an old habit that has made the end of his little finger yellowed and scarred. As the fourth movement of the Mozart Concerto plays inside over laughter and conversation, Oppenheimer allows his gaze to rest on falling snowflakes, easing into a distant, unfocused stare. He and his friend Hakon Chevalier used to listen to this song. It feels like so long ago. They played this record late at night, toasting the Spanish loyalist cause and imagining their version of Utopia. It was a simpler time, and he had been naive. Now, he was racked by the enormity of his work. Not only was he developing a weapon that could wipe out a city, competing in an arms race with a maniacal German madman, but he had his friends and family to worry about, political idealists, most of them, who had come under intense scrutiny as his own star rose. It was up to him to keep them safe as wartime paranoia ramped up, and he had failed. He had just betrayed his closest friend and his own brother. Oppenheimer drops the cigarette butt into the fresh powder at his feet, where the ember dies with a hiss. He turns and re-enters the house to kiss his wife Kitty, share a joke with his friend Niels Bohr, and mix up another round of martinis for his guests. Down the street, another cigarette hits the snow. A cigarette flicked out the window of a black car parked in the shadows. The engine starts, the exhaust pipe billows fumes, and the car pulls off down the icy road. Behind the wheel, beneath the shadow of his hat brim, is an army counterintelligence agent, part of a team whose beating heart had been, until recently, the infamous hunter of communists, Boris Pash. A man who, if he knew anything, knew that Robert Oppenheimer was a Soviet spy. And even if no one believed him, even if he were taken off the case and reassigned, well, Boris Pash would get the last laugh. Someday, Oppenheimer would pay. I'm Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This month, I am launching a multi-series podcast on a single topic, the nuclear arms race of World War II in the early Cold War. Episodes drop every Monday, or if you subscribe on Patreon for as little as $5 a month, you can get access to the entire series right now. 
I want to say up front thank you to the patrons who have joined so far. We've already gotten a few new ones. But also thank you to those who have been with me for the long haul. I truly cannot thank you enough. You are the people that keep this thing going. In addition to the last two episodes of Atomic Dawn, you'll also get a great bonus episode that digs deep into the clandestine spy network of a certain shady character in our story. And finally, I'll be sending all patrons a special gift created just for this series, a custom historium version of the Manhattan Project Insignia patch. This is Atomic Dawn, Chapter 2, A Prime Suspect. J. Robert Oppenheimer was born in New York City on April 22, 1904. His parents were Ashkenazi Jews, his father an immigrant from Germany who worked his way up the corporate ladder at a textile company. By the time Oppenheimer was eight, his father had done well enough for himself to move the family to the upscale part of Manhattan to collect art and to give Oppenheimer and his younger brother Frank a sterling education. Oppenheimer studied at Harvard, Cambridge, and the University of Göttingen in Germany, which at the time was the center of the world for theoretical physics, and he went on to teach at UC Berkeley and Caltech. He was charming yet intense, with a tendency towards the depressive, and though he claimed to, quote, need physics more than friends, unquote, he was nonetheless deeply loyal. He cut a distinctive figure. One close friend, Hakon Chevalier, who would play a particularly significant role in Oppenheimer's life, described him as, quote, tall, nervous, and he always moved with an odd gait, a kind of jog, with a great deal of swinging of his limbs, his head always a little to one side, one shoulder a little higher than the other, but it was the head that was the most striking, the halo of wispy black curly hair, the fine, sharp nose, and especially the eyes, strikingly blue, having a strange depth and intensity, and yet expressive candor that was altogether disarming." Though raised in New York City, Oppenheimer spent long stretches of his childhood recovering from illness in the high desert of northern New Mexico. As a man, he would periodically retreat to his and his brother Frank's Picos Valley Ranch in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. He was most comfortable in chambray work shirts and jeans, scuffed leather shoes, and eventually his signature pork pie hat. He always had a sort of Gnostic indifference to his health. He chain-smoked constantly, despite a hacking cough. He chugged martinis, four ounces of gin preferably made with 200-proof lab alcohol, a dash of vermouth stirred with ice and poured into a chilled glass with a rim dipped in honey and lime juice. He took his coffee black. When caught up in his work, he would go for long stretches without eating, and when he did eat, he preferred food that was blisteringly spicy. When fellow theoretical physicist Edward Teller, the eventual father of the hydrogen bomb, first met Oppenheimer in 1937, Teller reports, quote, He took me out to a Mexican restaurant for dinner. The spices were so hot and his personality was so overpowering that I lost my voice, unquote. Another physicist who would figure significantly in Oppenheimer's story, Ernest Lawrence, refused to eat the blazing hot Indonesian nasi goreng Oppenheimer repeatedly offered him, referring to it as, quote, nasty gory, unquote. Though Oppenheimer was a little sloppy in the realm of experimentation, he was a brilliant theoretician. He could be patronizing and aggressive towards those he didn't respect, making his rivals feel diminished in his presence. It was a tendency towards, in his own words, beastliness. His students would do anything to avoid angering him and receiving what they called the blue glare treatment. But as an acquaintance once noted, quote, he was great at a party and women loved him, unquote. Oppenheimer was attentive and empathetic with an uncanny sensitivity to the needs and desires of others. He had a solid sense of the delicate social intricacies and balance of power within a community. This made him the perfect, if unlikely choice for the Manhattan Project a secret military endeavor so revolutionary it had the potential to end the war in Europe, a project to build an atomic bomb. Well, I don't know, but I've been told uranium ore is worth more than gold. So, Macad, I bought me a Jeep. I got that bug and I can't sleep. Uranium fever has gone and got me down. Uranium fever is spreading all around. With a Geiger counter in my hand. I'm going out to take me some government land. Uranium fever has gone and got me down.
On September 18, 1942, General Leslie Groves, who had just overseen the construction of the Pentagon, became the military director of the Manhattan Project. A tall, hefty man, he was brash and to the point. Oppenheimer once said, quote, Groves is a bastard, but he's a straightforward one, unquote. Groves' wartime aide described him as, quote, the biggest son of a bitch I have ever worked for. He is most demanding. He is most critical. He is abrasive. He is sarcastic. He disregards all normal organizational channels. He is extremely intelligent. He is the most egotistical man I know. I hated his guts, and so did everybody else. But we had our form of understanding." Unquote. Groves was ruthless about prioritization. He could make difficult decisions without agonizing over them, and he ran a tight ship all of which made him the perfect man to oversee the Manhattan Project. Groves was convinced of the need for a massive, centralized, bureaucratic machine, a military-industrial project on an unprecedented scale. In early October, he arrived in Oppenheimer's office in Berkeley, ordered the colonel who accompanied him off on an errand to deliver his laundry, took a seat, and stared into Oppenheimer's crystal blue eyes. Oppenheimer turned on the charm. He knew why Groves was here, and he wanted what Groves had to offer, wanted it bad. And like Groves, he too believed that there was only one way to run a sophisticated nuclear program. He believed in the need for centralization, the elimination of redundancy, and the breaking down of compartmentalization. As the two men conversed, Groves had the growing awareness that Oppenheimer was a genius. While other greater scientists were hyper-specialized in their knowledge, Oppenheimer possessed a vast breadth of understanding. Groves later sang his praises, describing how Oppenheimer knew everything about everything. Well, except sports. There was a problem, though, and Groves knew it. Oppenheimer had a history of association with communists. His brother, sister-in-law, close friend, and, as we shall see, wife and former girlfriend, had all been members of the Communist Party. Oppenheimer had bleeding-heart political tendencies and donated to lefty causes and ran in lefty circles, all of which gave Groves pause. He was an old-school anti-New Deal type, a self-described hardcore conservative. In his view, Oppenheimer's politics were a snag, which, quote, included much that was not to our liking by any means, unquote. But what Groves saw in Oppenheimer's eyes that afternoon was, in his own words, overweening ambition. Ambition that would make him loyal, no matter the cost. Groves knew he had found his man. Now he just had to convince the men at the Military Policy Committee. It proved to be a tough sell. Army counterintelligence ran security for the Manhattan Project, a nuisance in Groves' eyes. He had plans to take over the operation himself. But for now, he approached them with his proposition to put Oppenheimer in charge of the entire project. Naturally, they refused, pointing to Oppenheimer's wide network of communist friends. But Groves kept at it. No one else had Oppenheimer's knack for seeing the big picture, his scale of knowledge, his drive to streamline the project and make it move fast. The committee agonized over the decision, but they had to admit, despite their reservations, that Groves was onto something. Reluctantly, they approved the appointment of Robert Oppenheimer as scientific director of the Manhattan Project. Groves was right. Oppenheimer would go on to serve the military's aims perfectly. A bit of anguish, sure, some bloviating about the Bhagavad Gita, of course, but he did his job and he did it well, because Groves was dead on in his assessment of Oppenheimer's priorities and drive. As a young man, Oppenheimer had never been much interested in politics. He had long been fascinated by Hinduism and the mysteries of the universe, which, in the words of a fellow physicist, surrounded him almost like a fog. When asked for his opinions on politics, he once replied to a student, quote, Tell me, what has politics to do with truth, goodness, and beauty? Unquote. Later in life, perhaps playing up his absent-mindedness for reasons that will soon become clear, he described his younger self, quote, I studied and read Sanskrit. I read very widely, mostly classics, novels, plays, and poetry, and I read something of other parts of science. I was not interested in and did not read about economics or politics. I was almost wholly divorced from the contemporary scene in this country. I never read a newspaper or a current magazine like Time or Harper's. I had no radio, no telephone. I learned of the stock market crash in the fall of 1929 only long after the event. 
The first time I ever voted was in the presidential election of 1936. To many of my friends, my indifference to contemporary affairs seemed bizarre, and they often chided me with being too deeply interested in my science, but I had no understanding of the relations of man to his society. Beginning in late 1936, my interests began to change. Unquote. In the spring of 1936, Oppenheimer met Gene Tatlock. His political consciousness had already begun to emerge that year due to his fury at the treatment of Jews in Germany and the effects the depression was having on his students. He later explained, quote, I began to understand how deeply political and economic events could affect men's lives. I began to feel the need to participate more fully in the life of the community, unquote. He had always preferred to devote himself to esoteric wisdom and theoretical physics, but he now began to feel a sense of solidarity with the loyalist fighters in Spain and the Dust Bowl refugees working as migrant laborers in California. In the 1920s, Oppenheimer's landlady and upstairs neighbor frequently hosted parties for Berkeley's intellectual left, many of them communists, members of the CPUSA. Oppenheimer would tromp upstairs from time to time when he heard a party happening. He could be extraordinarily charming, commanding the attention of the room one moment, listening with total focus the next, exclaiming, yes, 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 when someone made a compelling point. It was at one of these parties that he met Gene Tatlock, an aspiring psychiatrist. They began to date that fall. Tatlock was tall and graceful, intense and compassionate. She was prone to dark, depressive episodes, even more so than Oppenheimer, sometimes pulling him down into a depression with her. Yet from the start, they loved each other deeply. Oppenheimer later said, quote, I began to court her, and we grew close to each other. We were at least twice close enough to marriage to think of ourselves as engaged, unquote. She often read aloud to him and recited the poetry of John Donne from memory. Tatlock introduced Oppenheimer to a wider circle of friends, and Oppenheimer found a strong sense of camaraderie within the radical milieu. He particularly clicked with Tatlock's friend Hakon Chevalier, a French-Norwegian scholar of language, who aspired to write a great novel detailing the progression of his own radicalization. Together, the two men promoted popular front causes, founded a branch of the American Federation of Teachers, went to political rallies, and raised money to buy an ambulance for the loyalists fighting in Spain. Oppenheimer read all three volumes of Das Kapital, and everything by Lenin. He subscribed to People's World. He opened his apartment to students and like-minded faculty. With Chevalier's assistance, Oppenheimer wrote and edited a short-lived pamphlet, the second and final issue of which, on April 6, 1940, included an essay decrying President Franklin Roosevelt's preparations for the U.S. entry into the war. It read in part, quote, We think that Roosevelt is assuming the role of preserving the old order in Europe, and that he plans, if need be, to use the wealth and the lives of this country to carry it out. We think, that is, that Roosevelt is not only a warmonger, but a counter-revolutionary warmonger. We think it is this that has turned him from something of a progressive to something of a reactionary. Unquote. Oppenheimer and Chevalier believed the war, if allowed to run its course without American involvement, could bring about the end of the British Empire, setting the stage for the emergence of socialist Europe as the Soviet Union eventually overpowered a destitute and exhausted Germany. Oppenheimer's relationship with Tatlock, meanwhile, was on the outs. He had proposed marriage a second time. She, for reasons of her own, had refused. In August 1939, in Pasadena, Oppenheimer met another woman, Catherine Harrison, or Kitty, as she was known. The daughter of wealthy German immigrants, she was petite, whip-smart, ambitious, and an expert equestrian. She had previously been married to a Communist Party official who had died fighting with the international brigades against General Francisco Franco's nationalist faction in Spain. She, too, had been a member of the Communist Party, but had become somewhat disillusioned by the time she and Oppenheimer met. She was married to a British doctor, but that was of little concern to Oppenheimer. That summer, Oppenheimer invited Kitty and her husband out to his New Mexico ranch to hike, picnic, and ride horses with him, his brother Frank, and Frank's wife Jackie. Kitty's husband opted out, but Kitty went along and fell in love. A month later, her husband got a call from Oppenheimer. Kitty was pregnant. The couple spent six weeks, long enough to establish residency, at a ranch near Reno, the divorce capital of the world at the time, when ending a marriage was difficult in most states. On November 1st, 1940, Kitty made her divorce official 
and then immediately married Oppenheimer in a civil ceremony in Virginia City. Shortly thereafter, they moved back to Berkeley. In December, Chevalier was hosting a discussion group at his house, and Oppenheimer made an appearance. But as he parallel parked his car on a precarious hill, he didn't notice the nondescript black vehicle parked across the street. As he sauntered up into the house to greet his friends, two FBI agents were watching him closely. They wrote down his license plate number and later opened a file on him. The two men had been assigned to surveil Chevalier and some of his friends, and they had their phones illegally tapped, and they now included Oppenheimer on their list of potential subversives. But how was the whole political subversion thing going for Oppenheimer? Well, he was starting to feel discouraged about the state of the world. On May 17, 1941, he wrote to some friends, quote, My own views could hardly be gloomier, either for what will happen locally and nationally or in the world. I think we'll go to war. I see no good for a long time. And the only cheerful thing in these parts is the strength and toughness and political growth of organized labor." Unquote. Despite this growing unease, he was still connected at the highest levels in Bay Area leftist circles. On October 5th, FBI guys listening in on a bug overheard plans for Oppenheimer to meet up with a casual friend of his, Steve Nelson. Now, Steve Nelson was of particular interest to the FBI, a Croatian immigrant who had gone to Moscow a few years prior for training and espionage at the Lenin Institute. Nelson had volunteered for the international brigades in the Spanish Civil War alongside Kitty's former husband. Now he chaired the San Francisco branch of the Communist Party. He and Oppenheimer and their families had hung out from time to time over the years, but to the FBI, this meeting sounded like more than just a social call. These FBI agents were part of a clandestine program called COMRAP, which was somehow short for Com Intern Apparatus, that focused on weeding out Soviet spies in the CPUSA and the Communist International, or Comintern. For nearly a decade, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had been building his case that the CPUSA was riddled with spies, and he was determined to see the group banned. The agents followed Oppenheimer to a series of meetings with Nelson, but though they had a bug in Nelson's office, they were never able to overhear the conversations. Still, the fact that Oppenheimer was meeting with the most influential Communist Party leader in the Bay Area meant they were on to something. They passed the information on up to the head of the FBI's San Francisco field office and continued watching Oppenheimer closely. Oppenheimer, though, claimed he was losing faith. He later wrote, quote, I went to a big Spanish relief party the night before Pearl Harbor, and the next day, as we heard the news of the outbreak of war, I decided that I had had about enough of the Spanish cause and that there were other and more pressing crises in the world." Unquote. He would soon drop everything to devote all his energies to helping the Americans beat the Nazis to the atomic bomb. Chevalier could tell his friend was up to something. He knew that Oppenheimer was involved in some sort of secret scientific work. One evening, the two friends were discussing the war. The Nazis had laid siege to Stalingrad and were poised to gain control of the Suez Canal. Chevalier later recalled the following scene, quote, As things now stand, said Oppie, and given the present relation of forces, the Axis powers are almost certainly bound to win. He gave a mysterious look, and at the same time his eyes twinkled. But perhaps we can think up a few tricks, he added, almost chokingly then shook his head. It may be our only chance. There's nothing glamorous about being a gym teacher, even if you're a gym teacher at the most glamorous school in the United States, Hollywood High. Boris Pash was a gym teacher at Hollywood High, but he knew deep in his heart that this wasn't where he belonged. Oh no. No, no, no. Boris Pash may have been teaching physical education for the last 15 years, who's counting? He may have been coaching summer youth sports to kill time, but all the while, he was waiting for the call. See, Boris Pash, or Peshkovsky originally, had moved in his childhood from San Francisco to Russia, where he grew up to fight for the counter-revolutionary white army against the Bolsheviks in the Russian Civil War. After the Bolsheviks decisively consolidated power, Pash married an aristocrat and returned to the United States. 
He got his undergrad degree in physical education in Massachusetts, and later came out to Los Angeles to get his master's at UCLA. His only prior work experience that didn't involve fighting communists was coaching youth volleyball at a summer camp in Sebastopol. So that's what he did next, coached volleyball and taught gym. Through ROTC, he enlisted as a reserve officer for the U.S. Military Intelligence Service, and on summer breaks, he went out for training. Now, out here in his shorts on a warm Southern California November afternoon, he knew this wasn't his true calling. He was simply waiting to be mobilized. He would be, soon, after the attack on Pearl Harbor and the American entry into the Second World War. His first assignment assisting with internment of Japanese-American civilians in California. Next, he was given charge of a network of army undercover agents in Baja, prowling Mexican beach towns seeking out Japanese saboteurs who had made landfall via submarine. Pash didn't catch any saboteurs, but he took to the job with relish and went full counter-espionage mode. We're talking wigs, disguises, voice-altering devices. The guy was committed. From there, he was tapped to head the military intelligence wing of the Army's Western Defense Command. Soon, he was skulking around the San Francisco Bay Area as Army Chief of Counterintelligence on the West Coast, based at the Presidio. Of course, with the FBI also on the prowl, the job involved some jurisdictional standoffs. FBI Director Hoover had sworn to bust the Soviet recruitment ring centered on the Berkeley Radiation Laboratory, or Rad Lab, where Oppenheimer worked. But the Manhattan Project's own counterintelligence apparatus, run by the Army, claimed surveillance of the lab and affiliated scientists as their turf, and they looped in Boris Pash. Pash knew he was perfect for the job, because while the American public was focused on the Nazis and that crazy Hitler, Boris Pash had foresight. He knew that it wasn't really the Nazis who were the threat, not long-term. He knew from his time fighting the Bolsheviks that the real enemy was the Soviet Union. He knew that what would come to be called the Cold War was being fought now, despite the alliance, despite FDR's apparent affinity for Stalin. No, the real enemy was the Red Menace. Pash's zeal for communist hunting was not necessarily a shared by the Manhattan Project scientists. Chemist George Kitsiakowski, for instance, described Pash as, quote, a really wild Russian, an extreme right-wing sort of Ku Klux Klan enthusiast. He was really quite a character, this Boris Pash, unquote. Upon receiving his instructions from Groves to oversee Manhattan Project security at the Rad Lab, Pash took to the job with vigor, and he set his sights on Robert Oppenheimer. At the same time, the FBI's surveillance of Berkeley's nuclear physicist was getting on Grove's nerves. It was important to the Manhattan Project's administrators to keep the FBI in the dark as to the nature of their secret atomic bomb program. The Army told the FBI to stand down, and Hoover complied. Sort of. He officially closed the file on Oppenheimer, but he also opened a new investigation into communist infiltration of the radiation laboratory. SINRAD for short, which, again, not quite the most obvious acronym, but whatever. They listened in on illegal wiretaps on Bay Area communist leader Steve Nelson, and they monitored the movements of Rad Lab scientists. On March 29, 1943, the FBI bug in Nelson's apartment caught snippets of a conversation between Nelson and someone who clearly had knowledge of the impending plan to move Manhattan Project scientists to the Los Alamos compound. The two communists also referred to a man they called The Professor, who, from the sound of it, had shared some details about the Manhattan Project with Nelson. The FBI passed the transcript of this conversation on to Pash, who was jubilant. He was convinced that the professor in question was Robert Oppenheimer. The next morning, he boarded a plane and flew to Washington to report to Groves personally. Oppenheimer, he explained, was spying for the Soviet Union. It had to be him. Groves was skeptical. Shortly thereafter, the FBI confirmed that Nelson was definitely in contact with Soviet agents. The breach was severe enough that Groves now had to reveal to Hoover, as indirectly as possible, that the scientists who had met with Nelson were working on a project whose ramifications were existential. Hoover understood. He immediately requested all FBI field officers to be on the lookout for communists 
who seemed a little too interested in scientific experiments. Hoover agreed with Groves on a division of labor. Army counterintelligence would surveil Manhattan Project scientists, while the FBI would work to suss out communists in the Berkeley Radiation Laboratory. Pash, meanwhile, was going balls to the wall. He set up a fake business called Universal Subscription Company, which he used as a central hub for his network of undercover agents. He managed to get two fake bodyguards assigned to Oppenheimer to, like, protect him from assassins or whatever, but in reality, they were reporting back on his every word to Pash. Oppenheimer wasn't an idiot, and he never had significant conversations within earshot of the two goons in suits who followed him everywhere. Pash waited patiently. He knew that sooner or later, Oppenheimer would get careless. Spring 1943. Oppenheimer and Steve Nelson sat down for lunch. It was goodbye. Nelson later recalled, quote, He called me up and said that he was going away and would like to meet for lunch. We met at a restaurant on the main strip in Berkeley, and he appeared excited to the point of nervousness. He couldn't discuss where he was going, but would only say that it had to do with the war effort. We chatted mostly about Spain and the war and exchanged goodbyes. His last comment was that it was too bad that the Spanish loyalists had not been able to hold out a little longer, so we could have buried Franco and Hitler in the same grave. That was the last time I ever saw him." Unquote. Oppenheimer and Kitty also swung by Chevalier's place to bid their friend farewell. Chevalier later said, quote, "...there came finally the day when the Oppenheimers at last had to pull up stakes and leave." for that unknown destination of which we knew only that it was in high mountain country. Oppie and Kitty came by one afternoon, several days before, to say goodbye. An important chapter of our lives was now ending. We knew that Oppie was setting out on an important venture full of uncertainties and hazards. The future was full of foreboding. Few words were spoken, and those that were, were commonplace. Oppie and I were seeing each other for the last time, with hearts of absolute trust. No shadow had darkened our friendship, yet without our knowing it, the time of innocence had almost run out. I say without our knowing of it, but I can, of course, only speak for myself. Had Oppie already then made up his mind to make whatever sacrifice, to pay whatever price might be demanded in order to realize a newly conceived ambition? I do not know. The fact is that six months later, the die was cast. He had crossed the Rubicon. Unquote. Jean Tatlock tried to set up a time to say goodbye to Oppenheimer, but he wouldn't meet with her. As Oppenheimer prepared to depart, his phone rang. It was Jean. Oppenheimer didn't answer. On March 16th, Oppenheimer and Kitty took a train from Berkeley to Santa Fe and then took a car up into the mountains to the secret Manhattan Project facility called Los Alamos. Oppenheimer's brother Frank, a physicist himself at the Berkeley Radiation Laboratory, would soon join them. The site of Los Alamos had been Oppenheimer's suggestion. It was isolated, secure, and the rugged landscape was beautiful. He spent much of his childhood in the area. It felt like home. It wasn't long, though, before Oppenheimer received a message from his former landlady, writing on behalf of his former girlfriend. Jean Tatlock was being treated for depression at a hospital in San Francisco. She needed to see him. Oppenheimer came up with an excuse for Groves. He had returned to Berkeley to hire a personal assistant, he said, which was true enough. He got a train out west and arrived in Berkeley. From the moment he stepped out onto the platform, he was tailed by two of Boris Pasha's agents. They followed him to his meeting with a potential assistant. They followed him to a dinner with a fellow physicist. The next day, they followed him across the Bay Bridge and observed his every move, compiling the following report. Quote, on June 14, 1943, Oppenheimer traveled via Key Railway from Berkeley to San Francisco, where he was met by Jean Tatlock, who kissed him. They dined at the Xochimilco Cafe, 787 Broadway, San Francisco, then proceeded at 10.50 p.m. to 1405 Montgomery Street and entered a top-floor apartment. Subsequently, the lights were extinguished, and Oppenheimer was not observed until 8.30 a.m. the next day, when he and Jean Tatlock left the building together. The relationship of Oppenheimer and Tatlock appears to be very affectionate and intimate." Unquote. 
The next day, with Agent still on his tail, Oppenheimer again planned to meet with Tatlock in downtown San Francisco. He waited for her outside the United Airlines office. When she arrived, he rushed to greet her, and they held each other for a moment. They went out for dinner, and afterward, she drove him to the airport. The two agents watched from a distance as Oppenheimer and Tatlock talked for a while in her car. Eventually, he got out, took his luggage, and boarded the plane. All this time, the agents had remained out of earshot of the couple's conversations. The reason for Oppenheimer's urgent visit remained a mystery. The two spies reported back to Pash, who reported to Groves. Oppenheimer had just made a secret trip to liaise with a Communist Party member who might very well be sharing nuclear secrets with the Soviets. Groves took Pash's intel to the FBI along with requests to bug Tatlock's phone. The FBI dragged their feet. They complained that they weren't Pash's errand boys, but they eventually complied. Pash, meanwhile, was building his case that Oppenheimer was no good. At the very least, he was a pawn in a nefarious Soviet scheme. But Pash had his suspicions that Oppenheimer's whole reason for joining the Manhattan Project was to ensure that Russia got an atomic bomb. Pash kept a list of all the communists and suspected communists Oppenheimer had hired to the atomic bomb project. He noted Oppenheimer's brother Frank's extensive involvement with the Communist Party. He noted Oppenheimer's close friendship with Hakon Chevalier. Pash pestered Groves to fire Oppenheimer. He presented him time and again with his suspicions. When it became clear that Groves was sticking to his guns, Pash went behind his back and tried to convince his boss, the Manhattan Project's chief of security, to pressure Groves into letting Oppenheimer go. The FBI was on Pash's side in all of this, but no dice. Groves stood his ground, asserting that Oppenheimer was irreplaceable. Removing him from the project would set the program back six months, a delay that could be a matter of life and death. This whole time, Oppenheimer's security clearance had been in limbo, but on July 20th, Groves ordered it approved, quote, without delay, irrespective of the information which you have concerning Mr. Oppenheimer, he is absolutely essential to the project, unquote. Groves' chief of security interviewed Oppenheimer and came away convinced that the physicist was no threat. He reported to Groves that he thought Oppenheimer's ego and ambition were too tied up with the project for him to ever risk leaking intel to the Russians. Groves' read on Oppenheimer was exactly the same. Oppenheimer was in. Pash was left out in the cold. He had been ignored by his superiors, but he was still determined to be the one to bust the Oppenheimer Soviet spy ring. It was time to get serious. Boris Pash now had to work with the FBI's special agent in charge. The agent shot down all of Pash's coolest ideas and complained about him to his bosses. For example, one of the agent's reports to Hoover read, quote, Pash has been negotiating for authority from Washington to obtain a boat for the purpose of shanghaiing various communists employed in the laboratory and taking them all out to sea where they would be thoroughly questioned. Any statement so obtained could not be used in prosecution, but apparently Pash did not intend to have anyone available for prosecution after questioning." Unquote. When this plan to drug suspected spies, take them out into the bay, interrogate them, and drown them was rejected, Pash had another idea. They would forcibly detain one of Oppenheimer's physicists, the one who had told organizer Steve Nelson about the unnamed professor who might be interested in the communist cause, and they would pressure him into turning double agent. The FBI men pointed out to Pash that their operation depended on subtlety and discretion. One of the agents reported to his boss that, quote, pressure was brought to bear to discourage this particular activity, unquote. It was becoming abundantly clear that Pash would be better suited to an assignment that benefited from his zeal. Groves began considering his options, but Boris Pash would get one last crack at Oppenheimer. Constantly surveilled, dogged day and night by clandestine pursuers, Oppenheimer finally threw Pash a bone. He gave him a clue. On August 26th, Oppenheimer visited Berkeley and sought out Boris Pash. Pash sat down across from him for a formal interrogation. Next door, a technician listened in on their conversation and recorded it. Oppenheimer was surprisingly forthright. He told Pash that he, as well as two or three other men on the Manhattan Project, had been approached by an intermediary, a professor among the faculty at Berkeley, 
about the possibility of passing scientific information to an official at the Soviet consulate. He said he was telling Pash this because he wanted him to understand the broader context. Oppenheimer said to Pash, quote, Let me give you some background. You know how difficult it is with the relations between these two allies. And there are a lot of people who don't feel very friendly to Russia, so that the information, a lot of our secret information, doesn't get to them. And they are battling for their lives, and they would like to have an idea of what's going on. And that this is just to make up, in other words, for the defects of our official communication, and that this is the form in which it was presented." Unquote. He did, though, think that candor with the Russians was a good idea. He said, quote, to put it quite frankly, I would feel friendly to the idea of the commander-in-chief informing the Russians we are working on this problem. At least, I can see that there might be some arguments for doing that, but I don't like the idea of having it moved out the back door." Unquote. Pash pressed for a name, but Oppenheimer continued, quote, "...you may or may not know that in many projects we share information with the British, and some we do not, and there is a great deal of feeling about that, but I don't think that the issues involved here seem to people very different." Unquote. He gave Pash the name of one man who he felt was particularly sympathetic to the Soviets and who he perceived as posing a genuine security threat. But Pash was most interested in the name of the intermediary, the mystery professor. Oppenheimer flatly refused to give him up. He said he had every reason to believe the man was no longer involved in the plan, that the intermediary now thought it was a bad business. Oppenheimer went on, quote, it is also my duty not to implicate these people, who are my acquaintances or colleagues, and so on, of whose position I am absolutely certain myself, and my duty is to protect them." Unquote. Pash said, quote, I would leave this thought with you, Dr. Oppenheimer, if you at some time find it possible. We certainly would give a lot of thanks and appreciation for the name of that intermediary." Unquote. Pash left the conversation convinced, without definite proof, that Oppenheimer was a secret Communist Party member and Soviet spy. He flew to Washington to hand the transcript of the conversation to Groves himself, and he requested that the FBI in Berkeley ramp up their surveillance. He insisted that they seek out the name of the intermediary. The hunt for the mystery professor was on. Stenographers transcribed every phone call Oppenheimer made to Berkeley and passed the files along to Pash's boss, who scrutinized them for clues as to the identity of the intermediary who was working for the Soviets. Army counterintelligence agents followed Manhattan Project scientists around Berkeley, opened their mail, kept detailed records of every person they met. Pash kept a list of suspects and refused to let any of them out of his team's sight. When one managed to board a train and lose the agent tailing him, Pash jumped into action. He called the railroad and ordered them to stop the train. Then he hustled an agent onto an army plane to chase down the suspect. It was all a bit much. Finally, Groves decided he'd had enough. If Pash wanted to bend the rules, blur jurisdictional lines, chase down scientists, and stop Russians from getting nuclear secrets, Groves had the perfect job lined up for him. On November 25th, Boris Pash was reassigned to a highly sensitive mission in Europe, and it's here that he exits our story, for now. He left behind a well-trained intelligence apparatus to carry on his work. The thing is, Groves was concerned about the prospect of a leak. He spoke with Oppenheimer as a friend and asked him to give up the name of the professor. Oppenheimer refused, unless it was a direct order. Groves didn't want to order him to do it. He told Oppenheimer to think about it. Finally, in early December 1943, Groves took a plane to Los Alamos. He called Oppenheimer into his office and made it clear he would order Oppenheimer to give up the name unless he told him voluntarily, then and there. Oppenheimer fidgeted, anxious. He asked Groves if he would promise to keep the name a secret once he knew. Groves agreed. The intermediary... Oppenheimer said, was Hakon Chevalier. Groves asked for the names of the three other scientists Chevalier had approached. There was only one other, Oppenheimer said, his brother, Frank. Oppenheimer asked Groves to withhold the information from the FBI. He said he trusted that Chevalier and Frank were no longer involved with the Russians. He himself had advised them to have no part of the scheme, and they had heeded his advice. He knew that giving their names to Hoover could ruin their lives. Groves agreed. 
which Groves realized en route back to D.C. was a felony. He had just learned of a conspiracy to leak top-secret military research, and he had promised to keep that information to himself. In Washington, in his office, in the War Department building, he summoned his chief of security and his lawyer to ask them for advice. They gave him the advice you would expect. Tell the FBI. But Groves was afraid that if he betrayed Robert Oppenheimer, the man whose very shoulders the entire American nuclear bomb project rested, the whole thing could come crashing down. He chose to keep Oppenheimer's admission secret. Without Groves' approval, though, his chief of security went to the FBI and informed Hoover's aides that a con chevalier had approached Frank Oppenheimer about passing nuclear secrets to the Soviets. The FBI began shadowing Chevalier more closely. They read his mail and convinced a housekeeper at his hotel to show them his diary. Chevalier found he was suddenly unable to find work, so settled down and began to write a novel in his wife's parents' beach house. Five FBI agents lurked outside his house around the clock, while three ensured that someone was always listening in on the bug they placed in his house. He would be followed and surveilled for years. The FBI also monitored Frank. He was now working for the Manhattan Project in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and they kept well up to speed on his and Jackie's mundane correspondence. They didn't turn up anything additional to incriminate them. He, too, would be dogged by agents for the better part of the next decade. Boris Pash's agents kept a close eye on Jean Tatlock, while the FBI listened in on her phone calls. They surveilled her for months with no evidence to indicate that she was passing intel between Oppenheimer and the USSR. On January 3rd, Jean, feeling low, went to visit her father. As she left for home, she told him she would call tomorrow. She never called. Her father tried calling her, but couldn't get an answer. So the next day, he went to her apartment. When he knocked at the door, there was only silence inside. Fearing the worst, he climbed through a window. He found his daughter dead, lying at the end of a bathtub with her head hanging over the edge underwater. He lifted her body and carried it into the living room, where he placed it on the sofa. There was a note on the dining room table, written in pencil on an envelope. It read, quote, I am disgusted with everything. To those who loved me and helped me, all love and courage. I wanted to live and to give, and I got paralyzed somehow. I tried like hell to understand and couldn't. I think I would have been a liability all my life. At least I could take away the burden of a paralyzed soul from a fighting world. Unquote. By all official accounts, Jean Tatlock's death was a suicide. According to the coroner's report, Jean had died sometime the night before of acute edema of the lungs with pulmonary congestion. She had drowned. The report noted that she had eaten a full meal. There were drugs in her system barbiturates. At the time, she was being treated by a psychiatrist and had medication around the apartment. She also had access to drugs as a result of her work in a hospital. There was also a trace of chloral hydrate, a common date rape drug, also known as knockout drops. But chloral hydrate requires alcohol to be metabolized, and there was no alcohol in her system. When the news broke of Tatlock's death, the FBI office in San Francisco sent a cable to J. Edgar Hoover stating, quote, No direct action will be taken by this office due to possible unfavorable publicity. Unquote. In the 1970s, Gene Tatlock's brother raised some new suspicions about his sister's death, which, while they may not necessarily be probable, are worth mentioning, at the very least, for the light they shed on another character in our story. In 1975, the Select Committee to Study Government Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, or as it's known, the Church Committee, directed public awareness to CIA secrets like MKUltra and COINTELPRO, as well as plots to assassinate foreign leaders. What caught Hugh Tatlock's attention, though, was a familiar name, Boris Pash. Summoning Pash to the stand, the committee revealed that beginning in 1949, Pash had worked for the CIA's Office of Policy Coordination, which carried out dirty tricks abroad. Pash served as the chief of Program Branch 7, a special operations unit. According to the testimony of Pash's boss, Pash had handled assassinations, kidnappings, and other covert operations. Pash denied this, 
but the Senate committee staff investigation determined that it was true. They had ample proof. For instance, CIA documents confirmed that Pash, working within the CIA's Technical Services Division in the 60s, had helped design poison cigars as part of a plot to assassinate Fidel Castro. Later in 1975, notorious CIA officer E. Howard Hunt, known for his hits like The Bay of Pigs, The Coup in Guatemala, and Watergate, claimed in the New York Times that during the 50s, Pash ran a special ops unit that handled, quote, assassination of suspected double agents and similar low-ranking individuals, unquote. To outsiders like Hugh Tatlock, this information, along with Pash's request for permission to drug and drown left-leaning nuclear physicists, seemed to call for a closer investigation into the operation Pash had set up around Jean Tatlock in the time leading up to her death. Pash himself, of course, had the perfect alibi. When Tatlock died, he was across the Atlantic on a mission of existential significance. Oppenheimer took the news of Tatlock's death hard. For hours, he walked alone, deep into the woods beyond the Los Alamos fence, silent. After the war, in a security hearing in 1954, with Kitty sitting in the back of the room, Oppenheimer was dragged into a show trial and asked to explain his relationship with Gene Tatlock. Despite never having found evidence that Tatlock passed secrets to the Soviets for Oppenheimer, the committee gratuitously demanded the account for his final visit to his former girlfriend. One last turn of the screw. The questioner asked, quote, Doctor, between 1939 and 1944, as I understand it, your acquaintance with Miss Tatlock was fairly casual. Is that right? Unquote. Oppenheimer answered, Our meetings were rare. I do not think it would be right to say that our acquaintance was casual. We had been very much involved with one another, and there was still very deep feelings when we saw each other. How many times would you say you saw her between 1939 and 1944? The questioner asked. That is five years. Would ten times be a good guess? Oppenheimer replied. The questioner asked Oppenheimer to explain his reasons for visiting. Oppenheimer walked him through a few run-of-the-mill instances of times he saw Jean, mentioning almost offhand a visit in June or July of 1943. The questioner stopped him and said, I believe you said in connection with that that you had to see her. Yes, Oppie replied. Why did you have to see her? The questioner wanted to know. She had indicated a great desire to see me before we left, Oppenheimer said. At that time, I couldn't go. For one thing, I wasn't supposed to say where we were going or anything. I felt that she had to see me. She was undergoing psychiatric treatment. She was extremely unhappy. Did you find out why she had to see you? The questioner asked. Oppenheimer replied, because she was still in love with me. At 5.29 a.m. on July 16, 1945, on a wide-open stretch of desert known as the Jornada del Muerto, an abrupt flash of light, a blazing artificial dawn. One observer described it, quote, The whole country was lit by a searing light with the intensity many times that of the midday sun. It was golden, purple, violet, gray, and blue. It lit up every peak, crevice, and ridge of the nearby mountain range with a clarity and beauty that cannot be described, but must be seen to be imagined. Unquote. A surge of heat melted the surface of the sand into a concave shell that hardened into glittering green glass. In base camp, ten miles away, the wave of heat felt as hot as an oven. The blast rattled seismographs hundreds of miles away. A gargantuan fireball levitated over the desert floor, ponderous atop a column of pale smoke. It was the world's first nuclear explosion. Frank Oppenheimer recalled, quote, There was this sense of this ominous cloud hanging over us. It was so brilliant purple with all the radioactive glowing, and it just seemed to hang there forever. It was very terrifying, and the thunder from the blast, it never seemed to stop. 
Not just like an ordinary echo with thunder. It just kept echoing back and forth in that Jornada del Muerto. Unquote. Robert Oppenheimer named the test Trinity as a secret homage to his lost love, Gene Tatlock. The name referenced a John Donne poem Tatlock had shared with him years earlier. It goes like this. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. This episode of Historium was written by Thomas and produced by me, Jake Barton. The main sources for this episode were the books The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes and Brotherhood of the Bomb, The Tangled Lives and Loyalties of Robert Oppenheimer, Ernst Lawrence, and Edward Teller by Greg Herkin. We also consulted American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, and An Atomic Love Story, the Extraordinary Women in Robert Oppenheimer's Life by Shirley Strzyzynski and Patricia Claus, and Robert Oppenheimer, A Life Inside the Center by Ray Monk, Oppenheimer, The Story of a Friendship by Hakan Chevalier, and Steve Nelson, American Radical by Steve Nelson, James R. Barrett, and Rob Ruck. Some of the music for this episode was original, composed with this story in mind by M.S.T., you can hear more of their work at mountainstandardtime.substack.com. And of course, if you are a patron of Historium, you can listen to and download the original score for this episode on Patreon. Also, if you subscribe on Patreon for just 5 bucks a month, you can access all of the episodes in this series right now. Plus, there will be some additional bonus content related to this series. And if you sign up within the next few weeks to support Historium on Patreon, or if you already support the show, we have a special little gift for you. A custom Manhattan Project insignia patch designed just for this story. It's all there on Patreon for just five bucks a month. The link is in the show notes. In the next episode of Historium, we'll follow a crack team of Norwegian Special Ops Commandos deployed on a treacherous mission to sabotage the Nazis' only source of a critical component for building nuclear reactors. Meanwhile, Heisenberg flees from a familiar pursuer. As always, thanks for listening. We're living in a country that's the finest place on earth. But some folks don't appreciate this land that gave them birth. I hear that up in Washington they're having an awful fuss. Cause communists and spies were making monkeys out of us. The bureaus and departments have been busy night and day They're figuring out just how we gave our secrets all away And Congress has appointed a committee, so they said To find out who's American and who's a low-down red They call them up to Washington to speak for Uncle Sam But when they ask them what they are, they shut up like a clam I wish they'd take and put me on the witness stand today I'd yell so loud, old Stalin could hear me all the way. I'm no communist, I'll tell you that right now. I believe a man should own his own house and car and cow. I like this private ownership, I want to be left alone. Let the government run its business, and let me run my own. Our government is bigger than it ever was today. The more they hire to work for it, the more they have to pay. Our public servants should be proud and honest, you would think. Instead of taking bribes and dressing up their wives in mink. The taxes keep on going up, of that there is no doubt. But still they just can't take it in as fast as they dish it out. Our national debt is a monster size and growing every day. Our children's children, still unborn, are gonna have to pay. Our dollar used to be the soundest money on this earth But now two bucks won't even buy a good old dollar's worth Unless we stop inflation and take care of what we've got The communists may win the fight and never fire a shot 
communist, I'll tell you that right now. I believe a man should own his own house and farm and cow. I like this private ownership. I want to be left alone. Let the government run its business and let me run my own. 